This is Robin Rose. He is a DC-based artist. He's well known for his textured paintings and encaustic, and he has work in the Hirshhorns collection, as well as the Corcoran, the Phillips, Sam, and elsewhere. And um, he's recently been doing some work that shifts away from two-dimensional and has been creating more installations and sculptures. Currently, he has a show up in Charlottesville called Crescendo, which is at the Second Street Gallery, and I think closes this weekend. Robin told me that he first saw Blinky's work in Dusseldorf in the early 70s and that he got to see To the People of New York City, which is an installation at the end of this show when it was in its first exhibition at Heiner Friedrich Gallery in New York City. And Blinky's work has had a major influence on Robin throughout his own career. So we're excited to have him here today to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you a lot for coming today, and I really appreciate this. My take on Blinky is a little bit different, I think, than the two talks that have been given here before. Joshua gave a great talk, and and so did Patrick. You might want to go to the Hirshhorn website and check out the previous talks on Blinky's work at the noontime gathering like we're doing right now to get a different kind of feel for, for the work and also a little bit of different type of historical perspective. Mine is going to be quite different. Um... My daughter, Hannah Hope Rose, the artist, is usually my person that I, you know, send things through. I say, Hannah, what do you think of this? So she's 18. I said, Hannah, give me a hint of, on Blinky's work. Just tell me what you think about this stuff. She hasn't seen the show. She just saw the catalogs. And she said, he's structurally unstructured, Daddy. He's a contradiction. And so when you look at this work, you think, okay, a contradiction. What is a contradiction? What What produces ambiguity? And it's interesting when you look at Blinky's work because you have to consider the time in which this was made. We're talking really the the, uh, portal of the psychedelic era. And we're talking really from about, he started school at the Kunst Academy where he studied with Joseph Boyce in around 1964. But by 1967, he graduates and he's out in the real world making art. Well, at the same time, The Doors' first album with the song Break On Through to the Other Side comes out. Jimi Hendrix's experience in 1967 comes out. And let me read these lyrics to you. And this will set the precedent for what I believe is Blinky Palermo's, shall we say, door to a new type of thinking and a new type of seeing. If you can just get your mind together, then come on across to me. We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise from the bottom of the sea. He said, but first, are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? And Jimi Hendrix says, well, I have. And if you look at Blinky's work, The reason it's called an artist, artist, artist painting or sculpture or whatever you call it, installation, is there's some sort of appeal in Blinky's work. And I call that appeal spherical. It's spherical. It's not linear. It doesn't go A, B, C, D. It goes, I'm going to hold this away from my mouth because I I don't know if I can do this. Can you hold this for me? This is the, the Buddha's mudra for the universe of the world. And Blinky's work is like an arc in an onion uh, starting in the center and moving out. It's very different than an A, I did this, and then I'll do that. 
This might not look anything like that, but there is a, a consistency. There's a parallel level of accomplishment in the change. I'll give you a perfect example. The Beatles are probably the best example I can possibly think of. If you, Paul wrote, why don't we do it in the road, but he also wrote Michelle. These are two very different kind of songs. They mean something very different, but yet they coexist in a parallel universe. And Blinky came out, by the way, in 1967, the famous conceptual album, Sgt. Pepper hits the, hits the Road, and changes everybody's idea of what a record album could be like and how songs could produce a spherical reading. In other words, much like literature, you have a character enter here, you have a character enter there, and a character enter here, and pretty soon you have a shape that's not just a straight line, but a shape that's spherical. Um, the Kunst Academy in Dusseldorf at the time, when Blinky went to school here, was probably the greatest art school in the world. Uh, there had been one before that that has received an awful lot of attention. It was called the Black Mountain School in North Carolina. And in North Carolina, this is where you had Joseph Albers, who was the, the, the chairman of the school, and you had people such as Rauschenberg and Johns and uh, John Cage and all these incredible minds coming out of that school in the early 40s and 50s. I know about this because my mother used to go to Camp Montreat, which was across the lake, and quote, honey, they didn't wear clothes a lot of the time. <laughs> I remember it, I've never forgotten it. I looked into that, and I, guess what? At the Kunst Academy was a pretty wild place too. In fact, the more research I do in the Kunst Academy, the more I'm finding out how radical a place it really was. Because you had Sigmar Polke, you had um, uh, Gerhard Richter, uh, Emmy Koble, all of these famous artists coming out of there that were incredibly influential in art in Europe. In fact, Blinky Palermo, let's take a name, Blinky Palermo, the name comes from a prize-fighting uh, manager who at one point uh, managed Sonny Liston. Now, this is what's important about this. Blinky's moniker, Blinky Palermo, he was Peter, by the way, before. Nice change, I think. Blinky's moniker comes from a prize-fighting manager, not a prize-fighter. He didn't take the name Rocky Graciano, and he could have, or he didn't take the name of Joe Lewis. He took the name of Blinky Palermo, which supposedly is somebody he looked like. I don't know. I think he and Emmy Coble were sitting there getting stoned out of their minds, and they said, we're never going to get anywhere with a name like Peter Heisenkamp. Did I say it right? Um, we've got to do something. We've got to get a name that's going to work. It's a little bit like you're born a running rabbit, but you really want to be sitting bull. And you take a name that gives you power, and Blinky picked a name that gave him power. But I would like to say that Blinky's name is also chosen around a type of of power that it apparently he evoked constantly, and that is this. If you look at this work, and you look at it very closely, and you get beyond all your preconceptions about it, you will find that there's an incredible line of neither here nor there-ness about the work. It exists not as a physical object, but it does. It exists not as something handmade, but it does. This is not a painting, it's made out of tape. He wanted the form, so how do you make the form? He made it out of tape. There's a funk about it, it's a little bit like raku pottery. You build it, you throw it in the fire, and you let the funk take place. There's a little funk attitude about uh, Blinky's work that carries on 
through the whole entire show. It's a little bit like where and when is something finished? Every artist worth their salt will tell you point blank the two most difficult things in making art is when you start and when you finish. Everything else in between becomes the journey. And as Jimi Hendrix says, and I like this too, but are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. And you look at Blinky Palermo's work, at first you say, I don't get this stuff. Or maybe you say, I love it. Or maybe you say, I'm going to give it a chance. Or maybe you say, this is something I think I can learn from. I might be able to learn from this because I don't understand it. I might be able to learn from this because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in my linear way of thinking. It doesn't make sense A, B, C, D. But if you really look at this stuff, it will make sense A, N, N, C, C, T, P, Q. It goes like that. And so he goes through movements. You know, I'm, I'm standing in the room which I think is probably the... I call it the tipping point. Um, I'm not going to say that Blinky is a psychedelic artist, but let's just put it this way. Blinky dies of undiagnosed um, sources in a, in a kind of a place in the Maldives. And listen to the name of this place where Blinky trips the light fantastic for the last time. Corumba. That is the town Blinky went out on. At 33 years old. That's an interesting number. That's the Jesus number, 33. So anyway, he was a young guy. And if you think of his work that he's left behind, why are people so fascinated about this stuff? In Europe, he had a huge reputation, and he decides to come to the United States. He comes to the United States partly because that's where it's at at the time. We're talking around 1972, 74, right in that period. And he also comes to the United States because... You know, Kennedy steps up and says in Berlin, you know, ich bin ein Berliner, which means I'm a donut hole or whatever. But that was 1963. That opened the door. That buried the hatchet. That buried the hatchet with Europe and said, okay, let's rock and roll. You guys are getting your economy together. We're the world's largest economy, but we want you guys to play. Bring on your artists. And boy, here they came. The artists start pouring out of Europe. But... They didn't have the same sort of cachet at the time that the American artists did. Let's take one of my favorites and probably the precursor to much of what Blinky is doing here, and that's Bob Rauschenberg. If you look at Rauschenberg's work and you realize what an, a massive genius he is, one of the paintings that Bob did was in 1951. It was called the White Paintings, and they were nothing more than a series of white canvases painted with white house paint. And when he put these things up, Everybody freaked out. They said, what in the hell is this? This is not a painting. This is at best a surrogate for a painting, something holding the position of a painting. But over time, that decision to make that gesture, as a friend of mine who's a very good drummer once told me, my entire style is built on what I could have played and I didn't do. I thought, what? And I, you know, having played music long enough to know what he was talking about, I understand what he's talking about. But it, it's sort of, when you have a contrarian mentality, like Rauschenberg and Blinky Palermo, you're really coming at the world from an angle that is oblique. It's not 90 degrees. It's not perpendicular to a thought. It's coming in from the side. So because it's oblique, it requires a type of... Uh, 
it requires a kind of time, a sort of a time-lapse quality to, to kind of get it, you know, because it's not frontal. And I think that, like, Rauschenberg was not a frontal artist, and he, he was a very poetic artist. Blinky is a very poetic artist. Um, as I moved through here, I, uh, because uh, I was asked to do this because somebody asked me, do you know Blinky Palermo? I said, do I know Blinky Palermo? I said, you know, I was a hippie in Europe wandering around completely out of my mind in the early, well, this would be 68, 68, when he was 70s yet. And I stumbled on Blinky's work, and I cannot remember where it was. I'm sitting with a bunch of Dutch provos in a catacomb in Rome, and everybody's smoking chillums, and we're so high nobody can speak. And the only thing in common was a Jimi Hendrix tape that somebody had. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, man, right, Jimi Hendrix. And I was thinking, boy, that's it. There, the tipping point, I look back now, that was the tipping point, and Blinky is right on the tipping point. That's why this art has an incredible um, longevity. There's an endurance about this work. It's right on the tipping point of a psychological change that took the entire world by storm. Both Steve Gates and um, Steve Jobs um, are notorious LSD uh, heads, as they used to call them back in the day. Um, three-dimensional, five-dimensional, 20-dimensional thinkers, right? A whole entire generation of artificial intelligence has come because of spherical thinking, not linear thinking. There was an opening at that period of time, and it came probably because Blinky and all of his buddies were in this incredible school that encouraged this kind of thinking, and in some ways maybe even behavior. And what we've ended up now with is an enigmatic conundrum. Like my daughter says, you know, an, a, a structural, unstructured contradiction, an ambiguity that we can't just take apart immediately. This bugs people. This really makes people mad. If you can have an idea or have a concept presented by an artist that can't be taken apart quickly, we want things that we can resolve immediately and then we're not afraid of them anymore. Or, we, you know, they don't bug us. They're out of our, our context. But when you come across something that you can't quite figure out, there's something else that happens. And this is where I maintain here, Blinky, hold this. In order to see Blinky's work, I'm going to show you. It's, it's a physical metaphor that explains something that I just can't say in words. And I think that's the interesting thing about this work. There's much of it cannot be explained. But why do artists keep coming back to it? What is it about this young man, 33 years old, this guy never even had a chance to make the next generation of work? He, I lived in New York. I know what it's like to live in New York. And I remember Alan McCollum telling me, the day I got there, I went to this big party, and he said, I'm going to tell you something right now, man. I think he knew I was right off the farm. He said, it will never come to you. You've got to come to it. And I look at those paintings in there, paintings to the people of New York. Brilliant move on Blinky's part. Brilliant move. Puts himself right in the zeitgeist of the new Manhattan art scene. But what people don't look at those paintings very closely, if, excuse me, if you don't look at these paintings closely, there's one thing that you might not see. There's an incredible compression going on on those paintings. They're either compressed from the sides or they're compressed from the top. And the field of vision is consolidated. And I think Blinky, a young guy, gets to New York City, He's already famous in Europe. Every, he thinks everybody's going to love him immediately. Starts hanging out, meeting an American artist. 
realize, hey, wait, New York City's an awful big place. Every third person is an artist. There are more artists in New York City than there are women over 40. And so, he, you know, he's there and he's making these wonderful paintings. He's got his German flag colors. I love those, the gold, the black, and the red. He's got all this stuff and he's presenting these beautiful, beautiful, small, compressed paintings. And the reason I was asked to do this is because I'm interested in Blinky, but I was also influenced by Blinky. There's my influence in that room. I'm interested in the idea of compression. And I think in a way, if you look at Blinky's work, there's a human scale or a human condition to the work. And there's a kind of an anti-hero aspect to this work. But there's also, ready for this, a birth of the cool. Blinky was considered by numerous people to be one of the first hipsters, hipsters in, the, uh, in the European art world. Blinky was a hip, groovy guy. And uh, I'm sure that I would love to spend an hour with this guy because he's about two and a half, three years older than I am. I may have spent time with him. I don't know. It was a strange, <laughs> it was a strange period. Uh, uh, I'm just trying to see if I've missed anything here that, that I need to do. Glenn, where, where are we? Yeah, revolutionary intoxication. I thought that was interesting. That's something I found today by a guy named Mark Harris. Very interesting. Mary Heidelman has a painting called Surfing on Acid. Mary Heidelman is another one of these kind of painters that makes this, these kind of paintings that are kind of fall in between the objectness and subjectness of their being. And that's what I think Blinky has going to. The object-subject. Object-subject. Is it an object? Is it a subject? No, it's neither here nor there. And the position of here nor there is like a little bit like Buddha pose. You know, it's symmetrical. And this is something I want to say that I probably regret. I think Blinky is what would be considered an ultimate example of a centrist artist. And what I mean by that is someone who walks that very thin line and brings in the peripheries into the middle versus walking the line at the end of the peripheries, the far left or the far right. His work is enveloped and implodes. And that belies its real scale. So although the pieces are small in scale, their concepts are large in statue. And they're dreamy. They're dreamy. They allow you the time to bring to the party something of your own being. They're not easy. They're not easy paintings or easy sculptures to get. I mean, all of these pieces, if you start in that room and walk all the way through, you can see a progress of his, of his thinking. But it's not unlike the musicians of Blinky's era, where this one is rock-tinged, uh, this one is country-tinged, this is jazz-tinged. You know, they'd make a different album. Each Beatles album was different, if you remember right. I mean, that's the one thing I share with Blinky. I invent a different technology for every painting. People look at my work and they say, wow, you've seen one, you've seen them all. No, you haven't seen them all. What you're seeing is all the ones that could have been under there. I do one painting at a time. And I think Blinky, there's a kind of a oneness with his work, too, that I like. A one thing at a timeness. Are there any questions? <laughs> I hope I produced the spherical effect that I was talking about. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you're talking about this idea of the centrist of artists. We posted something online from you today that was about the idea of him um, 
being uh, perhaps uh, more conservative almost than um, than uh, than people might uh, might first consider. Like uh, there is a contrarian bent, is what you had identified, and I'm wondering, um, given the amount of time and the closeness of the friendship uh, between the amount of time he spent with. Gerhard Richter and the closeness of that friendship. Um, you know, Richter seems to be another person who pulls in a lot of things, and I didn't know if you, you know, how strong a link you would make between those bodies of work. Um, if you look at Gerhard Richter's work, you, the first thing that comes to mind as a painter is, okay, how do you do it? And I look at it, and it's a little bit like the fabric paintings uh, that Blinky did or fabric objects, you know, they function as a surrogate for an expectation of something that operates in that domain, but yet they're deceptive in the sense of how they're made and why they're made like they're made. And I think maybe that must be, I don't know. I'm, I've never lived in Germany. I've never spent time, uh, enough time there to know whether there's some sort of like a German psyche at work that's like this, you know, it is the home of Goethe and Rudolf Steiner and people with, you know, great thoughts, uh, Beethoven. I mean, is, is, is there a kind of an aspect to the German psyche that, that says something to the effect of, I can do it, but I can't take credit for it? You know, I think maybe there is a little bit. Uh, and I think I, I see that in, 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 in Richter's work. And I think that Richter and Blinky were buddies. They, they hung out together. And, in fact, uh, uh, Richter was... Uh, a uh, very, I think, uh, a kind of real sounding board for Blinky. And the, the paintings are very different, but they're not that different in the sense of what they actually do. They look like a painting. They have all the expressive qualities of a painting, but their generation is very mechanical. I'm not going to tell you how those paintings were made, but I've been done a little research myself. And it's interesting that the, the, the Gerhard Richter paintings have such expressive qualities. But yet, when you think about how they're actually generated, they're generated in a relatively mechanical way. And I think that's what they share in common, Richter and, and uh, Blinky Palermo. Um, Joseph Boyce was, a, you know, it, arguably the greatest art teacher in the world at the time when uh, Blinky Palermo was going to school. And... Um, I've done a lot of research on, I'm, I'm not acad academic, I'm a, a painter, I'm an artist, so I'm a screw-up. I, I, you know, I will get my facts wrong, I'll be off a year there, there, there's a fudge factor in the way I speak and the way I think. Just give me, as they say, I'm just a man whose intentions are good, oh Lord, <laughs> please don't let me be misunderstood. But the thing is that I think when you look at people's work, you can only imagine what they were thinking. I mean, I know when I make art, I, 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 and I walk out of the room and I think to myself, oh, God, did I do that? And then, because most artists are very good liars. If they're not very good liars, let's put it this way, they're very deceptive by nature. And uh, there's a lot of reason for it. They're also, in general, extremely superstitious. Uh, I just saw Peter uh, Doog, I think it's uh, Doog or Doig. I don't know how Doig, Doig, yeah. I just saw him speak at the Phillips, and he used a term, and I use it all the time myself. He said, you know, I was making this piece of work, and I got a gift. Interesting concept. He got a gift. You know, something that he didn't expect was going to happen, something that happened maybe. And this is, uh, uh, Thelonious Monk says this, and this is what I like. Thelonious Monk has a great saying. I wrote it down here. Let me see if I can find this. 
saying, because it's an important saying, um, and I'm, I'm regressing now because I'm using my, I'm getting out of my trance state and looking at all this stuff and trying to get it right here. Um, maybe I don't need a beautiful mistake, I think is what it was. You know, uh, Monk was one of the greatest uh, jazz pianists ever lived. And, and uh, again, ready to say, I'll, I'll say it, a shaman showman. And everybody in the jazz world wanted to play with Monk to see if they could. And I remember, I think it was Sonny Rollins said, I got no idea what he's doing, but I like to do it. I like to play with him, you know? And I think that uh, the shaman showman thing is a big deal because Joseph Boyce was one of the premier shaman showmen of all times, especially in the art world. And I think Blinky, Blinky's moniker, Blinky Palermo, Mr. Tough Guy, he was probably this kind of quiet guy, you know, that just kind of did his own thing, you know, but he's got this tough moniker. You know, it's kind of a showman-shaman position to take. You know, it's like, uh, watch out now, there's got a little dark, illicit part of me, you better watch yourself, you know. Um, that is different, I think, than just a straight-ahead artist working in their, you know, their loft and quietly looking at the wall. I mean, this is a positioning and Blinky did try to position himself relative to the art world. So there's a consciousness. It's not an unconscious guy just sitting there trying to wait for the next mistake to lead him to the, the, the next place to be. But there's still this incredible sense of centeredness when I look at this work. I can't get over it. There's a sense of the symmetrical, a balance between the ideas and the thing. There's a symmetrical balance, and there, the, his symmetrical balance offers a slight slippage, looseness on the edges. It's not pedantic. And the other thing is that I find interesting is that as Blinky progressed, I think he grew up. And I think as he grew up and became more worldly, it got harder. And now what, you know? And the latter paintings are this, uh, you know, kind of celebration of, of the challenge, you know. And any, any other questions? Because let's, let's jam. Robert? Perhaps in relation to the monk statement you were saying, there's a quote, I think, from Sun Ra where he says, if you can't play it perfectly right, can you play it perfectly wrong? <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you, what can you talk about in terms of the color palette of his work? Because it seems... So all over the map, and I don't know enough about his chronology to know which, where these pieces are from in that order, but is there anything about the color palette that says anything about him, or what does it say about him? Of course, leave it to Robert to ask me a question that I probably really can't answer. I think that you're right. I think his color palette's eccentric, and kind of like, uh, you know, the mustard yellow to this bright industrial blue, you know, the, the, the industrial green kind of color. I mean, you know, look, uh, Joseph Boyce talks about porosity. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. And that's a nice way of saying it. Blinky was a sponge. The guy sucked up everything. He had minimalism going. You know, you see, I mean, Ed Reinhardt. You know, you see Barnett Newman. You see uh, Bryce Martin. You see Agnes Martin. You see Ellsworth Kelly, big time. You know, you see Rauschenberg, you see Johns, you see all of this, the history of modern art kind of just pull through here. And I think that he was really good at doing that. And he happened to be in Germany where you could do that, where you could, you know, you could filter those kind of things and produce work. I mean, I wanted to say this, too. Blinky Palermo benefited from a lot of things, and one of them was a relationship with one of the world's greatest art dealers, Heiner Friedrich. 
was his art dealer. And I think, in a way, that much of what you see in this room, these rooms, would never have existed without that relationship. Some support system for really avant-garde ideas. It came at a time where they, I love that word, the zeitgeist was right, and uh, he got the type of support he needed to show this type of work. Also got the type of championing that he needed to show this kind of work. Uh, any artist would be envious of that relationship. Uh, when Robert asked me about the color, again, I go back to this, Robert. Some of the colors, I mean, like, you know, the, 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 in some of the paintings down there, the, the national flag of Germany, right? And that's kind of a given. Then some of the colors are sort of these industrial colors, like you see pylons and things that are being used for demarcations for dangerous areas or, you know, watch out or whatever. Um, a lot of those, but I don't get his color palette. This is where I'm, I'm stuck on this one too. I'm stuck at that on the color palette thing. I'm not even sure why these even have to be in color, but that's, you know. But there is something about his work that's very, very convincing once you allow it to come in. The work has a human aspect to it, a humanity to it, in terms of the, maybe the scale. But I don't even know if it's the scale. Maybe the screw-ups along the canvas edges where he lets a little bump show. I don't even know if it's that. I'm not sure if it's that either. I'm not sure that it has anything to do with what you can reasonably consider. I'm pretty sure that there's some dimensional thing here that worked that Blinky hit on that's like a poetic piece of DNA that follows along with other things that we don't understand, such as where does the sunset come from? And you just sit there and you just look at it and you go, oh my God, that's beautiful, please. He brings the architecture of the gallery into his work. And I think that's part of it too, part of it that gives you a good sense about, about this exhibit. That's a good point. You mean, yeah, and the space and the human being, and the work and the human being in the space. Exactly. So I've been giving tours, and so I've noticed that with people, that they respond to this very well. And it, it does seem to me, though, it's not on a, a level that you can articulate necessarily, but it, is, it does have to do with how the architecture and the work and you work together. So then you think so you think that he's, he's sensitive to the in, in, environment? Yeah, and I feel that from the wall paintings anyway. I mean, he did but, work with He's sensitive to the built environment. The built environment. Now, but, we, but we know, though, that these pieces weren't designed for this space. Right. But they were designed, I think, to be shown in, in space. In I mean, space. On a gallery wall. The white. I yeah. Mean, the, the, the work seems to bring... Well, the work seems to bring in... The gallery walls, some more than others, but yeah, but it does. Code. Yeah, there's something going on there. Me? <laughs> All right, I'll have a very practical and very ordinary question. If he was such an artist artist, and I know he was because I even get responses from artists from Latin America and elsewhere, why did it take such a long time? to do this major show. Okay, I don't know the technical ins and outs of putting together a show of this scale. I can only imagine how many letters and emails are sent to try to get this stuff. Because remember, you have to talk people often into loaning their works. Uh, it would almost take the power of a Hirshhorn or something else. I think this people that own these pieces love these pieces. They're 
obsessed by them, in fact. I've read articles about people that have Blinky's work. And I think it'd be very hard to get a lot of this stuff. Now, that might be one of the reasons. The other reason is I think it's a hard sell. I, I think you would walk to your board of directors, any curator, and say, okay, people, we want to do this show by this German artist named Blinky Palermo. That right away is, gets everybody's... <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, could have, it could very well have something to do with that. Like, it's a very hard sell to... to Again, this works like it, his work falls in this place that's neither here nor there. It's sort of, you can't just say it's minimalism. You can't just say he's a painter. It's not just a sculptor. He's not just a, you know, a theoretical thinker. There's, there's issues with his work that make it difficult to convince other people to step up. But the fact that this show's here in Washington, D.C. at this time, I think is incredibly pivotal. And for, for a couple of reasons, it gives the Herschel an incredible credibility among all of those people out there in the world who, you know, see Blinky Palermo as an important artist, and, and all those institutions that look to the, the Hirshhorn uh, to see what their scheduling is and stuff. But I think it's also, if you believe in human evolution, then it's very possible that we're on the brink of a tipping point of a type of new type of thinking and new type of perception that's being generated now physically from the outside through the Internet and this incredible repository of, of world knowledge that we now have access to. Uh, but all this might be the precursor to some things that are actually happening physically to us too. Um, my daughter is very different from me. She's 18 years old. She thinks differently than I do. Now, does every parent's child think differently than they do? I don't know. But I'm seeing a, 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 a dimensional aspect to popular music, uh, filmmaking, all of this stuff that existed in the avant-garde, but now it's spread out over a much larger space. It's hitting a lot on a lot more points. And I think that Blinky Clermont show is a good example of one of those points. And I'm really proud. This is an incredible honor for me to get a chance to do this today. It really is, because I feel like I'm, if nothing else, I'm paying this guy back. Payback time, you know? <laughs> I, I saw a comment the other day that fascinated me about the 1970s. He said, I was in art school, and they weren't teaching drawing. They weren't teaching painting. We were sitting around and discussing the end of painting. And at the same time, in theology schools, they were talking about God is dead. Now what do we do? So there was this something happening back then that was so different for both major institutions. And I think to, it, that captivated me, that idea. Do you think that maybe we're at a point now where we can look at that period of time, there's enough time between there, almost what, 40 years? It's a long time, really, to look back and we have a chance to see that period better and maybe understand how just revolutionary it was. I mean, Timothy Leary's at Millbrook, you know, expounding outrageous things. He's been asked to leave Harvard, but he's underwritten by numerous wealthy people who think his ideas are great. And he's out there saying, turn on, tune in, and drop out. You know, let's start a whole new world. This thing is not looking so great. You know, you've got uh, all kind of things happening in the world when Blinky Palermo was coming out of college. And I think that what's interesting to me, though, is I don't find that he was a reactionary. Contrarian, yes, but not a reactionary. 
And I think it, it, there's not, you know, there's not that, uh, I don't find a violent streak in his work, uh, violently against. I see quite the opposite. He was the sponge. Bring it on. Bring it up. Bring on the new idea. Let me see the next newest idea. Let me imagine the next newest place I can go with my work. And can you imagine, I mean, 33 years old, let's add another 30 years to that. Where would this person be now? It'd be hard to tell. I mean, he could very possibly be into computers or some other thing, maybe quit making painting altogether and making videos, or there's no telling. But I mean, you, people can see it, though. They see the kernel of this particular man's brilliance, and, and people have held the flame for him for a long time. And it's interesting that it's taking this long, like Melanie said, for him to get his day in the sun. For Blinky to get a shot at it. And so, you know, I think, go tell your friends. Say, I, you know, I went to see this wacky show over there at the Hirshhorn. You know, uh, I'm not, still not sure, but let me think, tell me what you think. Let me, let me hear what you think about it. Why should this stuff be at the Hirshhorn? Let me, let, me, let me hear why you think it should be there. Any more questions?